Hey everybody, Eric Grenier here, and welcome to the 15th episode of the RIT Podcast. We'll shortly hear from Sabrina Nanji of Queen's Park Observer about the latest developments ahead of next spring's Ontario election. But first, let's get to the election headlines. Here in Ottawa, Aaron O'Toole passed the first hurdle in holding on to his leadership of the Conservative Party when he met caucus on Tuesday. Some MPs came out of that meeting to voice their support for O'Toole, but those opposed are either small in number or weren't talking though apparently some of their frustrations were aired behind closed doors. Conservative MPs did vote to give themselves the power to call for a leadership review, though that doesn't mean they will actually hold one. But that is a first for the Conservatives. If a leadership review is to take place, 20% of caucus would have to vote for one to be held, or some 24 MPs. We'll see if these powers that the caucus has warded itself will ever be used. At least for now, party members won't be weighing in until the 2023 party convention. A judicial recount in the riding of Shadowgate-Lacol has overturned the preliminary results, giving Brenda Shanahan of the Liberals the win over the Bloc Québécois, who was initially leading in the count. Shanahan won by just 12 votes, and her win means not a single seat in Quebec changed hands in this election campaign. The Liberals stand at 160 seats, or 159 if we're taking into account Kevin Vuong, who will be sitting as an independent, but this still represents a gain of three seats over 2019, while the bloc is back to 32. In Manitoba, former Premier Brian Pallister announced on Monday that he had resigned as the MLA for the Winnipeg area riding of Fort White. Pallister first won the riding in a by-election in 2012 and was re-elected with a majority of the vote in both the 2016 and 2019 provincial elections. Pallister took 57% of the vote in Fort White in 2019, with the NDP and Liberals each taking 18%. The Progressive Conservatives have held the riding, or its predecessors, since 1990, so whenever by-election is held, it will be a tough one for the opposition to take. But on October 30th, the PCs will be choosing their next leader, and one of the two candidates, Shelley Glover, does not currently hold a seat in the legislature. So if Glover defeats Heather Stephenson, the health minister, this could be a seat for her to run in. So far, however, the bulk of the PC caucus has lined up behind Stephenson. Next door in Saskatchewan, the NDP leader Ryan Miley, he passed a leadership review over the weekend with 72% support. Not a very high mark for a sitting leader. Cam Broughton, before his defeat the following year, got 98% back in 2015. The last two leaders, Broughton and Dwayne Lingenfelter, they both lost their seats on election night and resigned after being defeated in 2011 and 2016. But Miley was re-elected in last year's provincial election, and his party captured 32% of the vote, up about a point and a half since the 2016 election. The Saskatchewan NDP also gained three seats, but they're still a long way from government. The Saskatchewan party got 61% of the vote, despite being in office now since 2007. All right, next we're going to hear from Sabrina Nanji. She runs the Queen's Park Observer, a Substack newsletter like the RIT, and it's something you'll definitely want to check out in the run-up to the June Ontario election. Every few weeks, Sabrina will be joining the podcast to give us the latest on election-related news in Ontario. So, Sabrina, what have you got for us this week? Hey, Eric. We're just closing out on a whirlwind week at Queen's Park, which is where I'm at right now. You might be able to hear uh, in the background some of the legislative bells going off, calling MPPs back to the House for the afternoon sitting. It's not the most soothing sound, and it will probably go for the next couple minutes or so, but it's one of the signs that the legislature is coming back to life this week and that the campaign, even though it's scheduled for June 2nd, 2022, about eight months away, it is already well underway. There's a lot to unpack, so let's start at the beginning. 
The new parliamentary session kicked off at Queen's Park with the throne speech, which feels like a lifetime ago now. It was short on new details. The Ford government essentially pumped up a lot of their greatest hits on COVID relief and teased improved standards for long-term care, which we already knew were coming. Uh, they, they talked about big spending projects like building infrastructure and transit, and those are all things that sound good to the electorate any day. What stood out to me was the fact that the speech shouted out two ridings in particular, uh, Brampton and Windsor-Essex regions. Those are two areas where the PCs think they can flip from NDP orange to Tory blue. Uh, over in the Windsor area, there's this interesting cross-section of blue-collar workers who may swing between NDP and Conservative. And then over in the 905 and Brampton in particular, there were some really tight races. I'm thinking of Brampton Center specifically, too. Um, so it makes sense that the, the conservatives think they could pick up some support there. In response to the throne speech, we also had NDP leader Andrea Horvath, uh, who leads the opposition, uh, staring meaningfully into the camera with her reaction um, to say that Doug Ford is not here for you. Uh, to me, that sounded a little bit like she was test driving a new campaign slogan there. And so against this backdrop, that same day, the ruling PC party launched attack ads uh, and have been rolling out more ever since. They're running on radio, TV, social media. Um, and, you know, keep in mind, we're still eight months out from the next election. So it's very early days yet. And we're already hearing some of this talk, uh, you know, seeping into question period this week and the legislature as well. Um, they There's one ad attacking liberal leader Stephen Del Duca by tying him to uh, his predecessor, Kathleen Wynne, some of her more unpopular decisions, such as the privatization of Hydro One. There's another ad that paints NDP leader Andrea Horvath as a politician who says one thing and does another. And then there's another one that is a little more positive. It pumps up Premier Doug Ford as a yes man who is uh, not afraid to, you know, spend money where he needs to. It also seems like Stephen Del Duca is actually emerging as the man to beat for 2022. You know, keep in mind, he doesn't have a seat. He's the leader of the third place party whose seven member liberal caucus doesn't even qualify for recognized status and all the legislative resources and time that come with that. You know, his party is not doing so hot on the fundraising side of things either, but the numbers for Q3 are starting to roll in. So that could change. Um, but but despite all of that, both the NDP and the PCs are taking aim at Del Duca. You know, on top of this ad that we saw from the conservatives this week, the NDP had already launched a similar attack ad using clips of Del Duca waiting for a Zoom call to start um, and again, tying his record to uh, wins, uh, the win days. And, you know, I mean, Del Duca looks awkward. OK, he's he's joked in a self-deprecating way himself that, you know, he's not the most charismatic guy. But I think, you know, who among us hasn't looked awkward on a Zoom in the this last year or so? The NDP also scored a star candidate this week, and I think we're going to see a lot more candidate nominations ramping up as we get closer to June. Um, the NDP uh, actually got Erwin Elman, so he was Ontario's child advocate until the Ford government nixed the position. He's going to be carrying the orange banner in Don Valley West. Now, Don Valley West is a liberal stronghold. It's been represented by former Premier Kathleen Wynne since 2003, but Wynne is not planning on running again. And some folks think Elman is, uh, as they've put it to me, a sacrificial lamb because 
he, it's pretty much a safe liberal seat. Um, but but here's the thing is that the liberal candidate in that riding does not have a high profile, uh, politically speaking, certainly not as much of, uh, you know, a star candidate as, as Erwin Elman is. She's a financial services executive, uh, right now on the board of directors for an insurance company, Stephanie Bowman, uh, who will be running for the liberals in Don Valley West, hoping to replace Kathleen Wynne. But a lot of the grits I've talked with says she's kind of this uninspired candidate. And it was a missed opportunity to put in a star who will very likely get elected to Queens Park. It's also this race is also an appointment. Um, it, they were making it a women only riding, which I think a lot of democracy and equality advocates will see as a positive thing from the liberals. You know, it's one thing to run a lot of women candidates on the ticket. It's another to run them in ridings where they can actually win. This is one of those for the liberals. But it did push out Robin Edger who works on the climate change file for the Insurance Bureau of Canada currently. He's someone who's arguably more high profile in politics, well-connected with organizers. Um, he was pushed out of the race in Don Valley West. I don't think he's planning on, on running anywhere else. But uh, the Liberals have a lot of candidates to make up and uh, nominate before next June. So I'm sure there, there'll be more drama to come. Uh, if you'd like to track all the latest buzz at Queen's Park, don't forget to sign up for Queen's Park Observer the most read newsletter at the legislature at qpobserver.ca. Hey, I'm Brett Chang. And I'm Jay Rosenthal. And we're here to tell you about Canada's top and only and only daily business news podcast. It's called The Peak Daily, and every morning we get you up to speed on the need-to-know Canadian and global business stories. And we do it without all the jargon that can make business news a little... A little dull? Dull, exactly. And did you mention we do it all in just seven minutes? Six minutes if we fast-forward through all of your dad jokes. Well, I prefer to call them rad jokes, Brett. See what I mean? Come for the daily business news, stay for the dad jokes. Join us and thousands of Peak Pals every morning to start your day smarter. Find The Peak Daily wherever you listen to your podcasts. Okay, let's get to the polls from the week. First to Quebec, which is now entering an election year with the 2022 vote scheduled for a little less than a year from now. So there was a poll that was out by Léger. It was done for TVA and Le Journal de Montréal. This was in the field between September 29th and September 30th and surveyed 1,002 Quebecers online. The vote results in the poll were pretty significant for the CAQ. 47% for François Legault's Coalition Avenir Québec. This is a gain of 10 points from the last election back in 2018. The Quebec Liberals were down 5 points to 20%. Quebec Solidaire was at 11%, putting them in a tie with the Parti Québécois. And the Conservative Party of Quebec, which is a bit of a newer outfit, has 8% support in this. So we're seeing a lot of movement going towards the CAQ from the Liberals, from Quebec Solidaire, from the Parti Québécois, and some of that vote is also going to the Conservative Party, which wasn't really a factor in the last election. The CAQ is ahead in all regions. They had 54% support among Francophones. In that group, the Parti Québécois was second with 13%. This is just a landslide territory for the CAQ. The Liberals, of course, have their strongest support among Anglophones, also in the Montreal region, while the Conservatives were actually second in Quebec City. They had 18% support. 35 points back at the CAQ, but it's interesting to see that the Conservative Party there, which is a bit more of a populist party, not really um, anywhere close to where the federal Conservatives are, are they actually going to be finishing second in a lot of Quebec City ridings? 
The Legault government got 65% satisfaction in the poll, which is, again, a very good number to have when you're just a year out from an election. And if you're looking at the performance for the opposition leaders, the net good-bad rating. So Gabriel Nadeau-Dubois, who is uh, one of the co-leaders of Quebec Solidaire, he was the only one who was above water. He had a plus four. Uh, So we'll see if him being a little bit more present on the campaign trail this time, because uh, I think he will be the uh, the main focus rather than Manon Massé, who is no longer one of the co-leaders. Um, is that going to help Quebec Solidaire? Dominique Anglade, who is the liberal leader, she had a minus three rating. So not too bad considering how low support is for the Quebec liberals, but uh, certainly not in contention with uh, François Legault. Paul Saint-Pierre Plamondon, who is the Parti Québécois leader, he was minus 16. So he's got to have a lot of work to do if he's going to try to increase the Parti Québécois numbers, because 11% would be their worst ever result. Uh, Eric Zuhem, who is the leader of the Conservatives, though, he's a minus 32. So some people like him a lot, but a lot of people don't like him. From a popular government in Quebec, let's go to an unpopular one in Alberta. This poll was done by Think HQ. It was done between September 29th and October 1st. 1,116 Albertans were surveyed online. These are bad numbers for Jason Kenney. His approval rating was 22%. His disapproval rating was 77%. That is just an awful, awful number for a sitting leader. If you just look at those who strongly disapproved or strongly approved of Jason Kenney, 6% strongly approved, 61 strongly disapproved. Now, this is a party that took 55% of the vote back in 2019, and you only have 39% of the electorate that doesn't strongly disapprove of Jason Kenney. Rachel Notley, who is the leader of the NDP, her approval rating was at 50%, her disapproval was at 47%. These have just been plunging for Kenney. He was plus seven in the net rating. He's now minus 55, but he was plus seven as recently as April 2020. And among UCP voters, people who voted for the United Conservatives back in 2019, his approval rating is only 39%. 60% of his own voters now disapprove of him. The election in Alberta, the next one, is only scheduled for spring 2023. So we'll see if Kenny can hold on. But with these kinds of ratings, he's actually at the same level as Alison Redford before she resigned as premier. And Jim Prentice had the same numbers before he lost that 2015 election that Rachel Notley and the New Democrats won. So not good precedence for Jason Kenney. He will either have to step aside or get these numbers moving in a positive direction. Okay, let's get to the questions of the week. This one is from Pete Pettis from the uh, Twitter machine. He says, do Tory results in Quebec have adverse effects on CAQ results in the upcoming provincial election? Similarly, is the failure of the bloc in gaining more seats a sign of doomsday for separatists in La Belle Provence? Uh, I would say no. Uh, I don't think the results will really have much of an impact on the provincial campaign because the CAQ is so popular that whatever is happening with the federal parties doesn't seem to have really any impact. We go back to that Leger poll. For instance, let's look at the CAQ numbers. They actually got support from federal liberals, from Bloc Québécois supporters, and from conservatives, along with New Democrats. Right now, 43% of liberal voters would support the CAQ. 63% of Bloc voters would support the CAQ. 47% of conservatives would vote for the CAQ. And even 23% of New Democrats would vote for the CAQ. So they're really pulling from across the spectrum. The fact that the conservatives didn't really have great results in Quebec, yes, they upped their vote a little bit, but they were still only at around 18%. 
uh, it doesn't really have an impact on the CEQ because they do not get their support primarily from conservatives. They get it primarily from liberals and bloc voters. And it's the same thing for the bloc numbers. The fact that the bloc did not increase support in Quebec and didn't gain any extra seats does not really bode badly for the Parti Québécois uh, because the Parti Québécois is actually the second choice of bloc voters. 63% of bloc voters would support the CAC, as I said, but only 22% would vote the, for the Parti Québécois. So we're really seeing a decoupling from uh, between the provincial and the federal results. Uh, so the Parti Québécois actually should look at the bloc numbers and wish they were as high as that. Michel-André Bro he asked, Given the election results, what are the long-term majority paths for both the Liberals and the Conservatives? Well, the long-term paths for the Liberals, it's really what it was going into this campaign, just trying to get a, a couple seats here and there to get themselves to 170, because they already have that base of urban and suburban Canada, and they've increased the, that base in, in the suburban parts. And so they just need to add, you know, small cities in Quebec, Trois-Rivières, for example, Um you know, they need to get small cities in Ontario, Peterborough, Niagara Falls, get back those rural Atlantic seats, pick up an extra seat in the GTA, pick up an extra seat in Winnipeg, Charleswood, for example, uh, get an extra seat in, in, in the BC Lower Mainland, maybe win in Edmonton Mill Woods in Alberta. It, it's just a very targeted approach that the Liberals need to do just to get those extra few seats in those suburbs, in those small cities that they weren't able to win in last month's election and get back some of those rural Atlantic seats that they lost. For the Conservatives, it's obviously a much bigger pull. There are 51 seats short of majority government. If you look at what those 51 seats were in terms of the ones they were closest to winning, there's not a huge amount of surprise. Uh, 13 of those 51 were in the greater Toronto and Hamilton area. So for the Conservatives to win a government, they do need to win in the GTA. No shock there. They also need to get back seats in the BC Lower Mainland. Eight of those 51 were in the BC Lower Mainland. So it is about getting back to the suburbs of Toronto and uh, Vancouver. And if they do that, they'll already be halfway there. But some of the other areas are perhaps less obvious. So there were seven seats that they were short in uh, that would have got them to 170 that are in smaller cities. So we're talking about getting back into Kitchener, winning seats in London, winning seats in Windsor. Uh, the Niagara area, St. Catharines. Those are the places where the Conservatives need to win. They need to win those small cities, get the suburbs in the GTA and Vancouver. But also one of the interesting things is uh, they actually did pretty well in Northern Ontario. Uh, they were pretty close to uh, winning some of those seats. Uh, there's actually six seats of the 51 that they were the closest to winning. Six are in Northern Ontario. So that is an interesting thing to watch. And really maybe the Ontario provincial election campaign next spring could give us some hint uh, just how strong that blue vote is in Northern Ontario. Apart from that, they need to get back their seats in Alberta that they lost. They could pick up an extra few in rural Atlantic Canada, maybe three more in Quebec. But really, it is about getting back to the suburbs, small cities, maybe increasing in places like Northern Ontario. Uh, Riding of the Day on Twitter asked, What second places were surprising for you? I'm thinking of NDP second place in Chilliwack Hope, Conservative second place in Brampton East, etc., uh, you know, I was looking around the map to see which ones were the second place finishes that surprised me. There were a couple that um, surprised me, but not so much in the way that you might think. Nanaimo Ladysmith, Vancouver Island, this was a green seat. The Conservatives finished second, and the Greens third. Now, it's not really a big surprise that the Conservatives finished second, because they were second in 2019. And on Vancouver Island, you know, you might not expect it, but the Conservatives actually have quite a bit of support outside of the Victoria area. 
But what was surprising about that second place finish for the Conservatives is that the Greens finished third. This means that the Greens did not finish second anywhere in the country. There was not a single riding where the Greens were in second place. They won Kitchener Centre and they won Sandwich Gulf Islands, but there's no second place finish in PEI, no second place finish in New Brunswick, anywhere else in Ontario, anywhere else in BC. So that is a bit of a surprise for me, uh, that the Greens didn't finish second anywhere. The People's Party, they finished second in six ridings. And though I'm, I'm expanding things a little bit, uh, I think it is notable just to note that the Maverick Party, you know, we talked a little bit about them. They didn't turn out to have really any impact on this campaign, but they finished third in Battleford's Lloyd Minster. So that's uh, their best performance. Um, some other ones just to note on Vancouver Island again, just to stick there, the Liberals actually finished second in Victoria. This used to be a green NDP fight, and now it's the Liberals who were second. The Liberals picked up five points and moved into second because the Greens fell 19. And another one that caught my attention was Desnethe, Mississippi, Churchill River, Northern Saskatchewan. Buckley Belanger, who was a former NDP MLA who resigned that seat to run for the federal Liberals, he finished second in that riding. But he was still 22 points behind Gary Vidal of the Conservatives. He had absolutely no impact on the Liberal vote. So the fact that this candidate really didn't improve fortunes for the Liberals in Desnethe, Mississippi, Churchill River, that was a bit of a surprise. Okay, in this installment of the Every Election Project, my look at all of Canada's election history, we're going back 34 years ago this week to one of the most remarkable election outcomes ever. I'm talking about the New Brunswick provincial election held on October 13, 1987. The Progressive Conservatives under Richard Hatfield had by then been in power for 17 years. Those last years in office proved to be difficult ones, as Hatfield faced a contentious and divisive leadership review. Hatfield had brought the PCs to power thanks to an outreach to Francophone Acadians in New Brunswick, undermining the Liberal strength among these voters. But by 1987, there was significant dissatisfaction among Anglophone PC voters in southern New Brunswick against what they saw as pandering to the French. Hatfield had also faced a series of personal scandals in his last years in office. With his party's popularity plunging, Hatfield delayed an election call until the very last days of his legal mandate, announcing a campaign that was as long as was legally allowed. The Liberals were now under the leadership of Frank McKenna. The party had had a series of leaders since Louis Robichaud's defeat in 1970, but McKenna was able to appeal to the Liberals' traditional Francophone base in the North, as well as to disaffected Anglophone Conservatives in the South. The NDP under George Little also ran a full slate of candidates, but had only won a single seat in 1982 and didn't have much of an impact on this campaign in 1987. With the government now in power for so long, riven by internal party disputes and with the sentiment of anti-bilingualism rising in New Brunswick, Hatfield's PCs looked doomed. And they were. The Liberals won 60% of the vote and all 58 seats in New Brunswick, one of only two complete landslides in Canadian history. With a Liberal gain of about 19 points, all at the expense of the PCs, Hatfield's party was shut out, losing all 39 seats they had won in the 1982 election. The NDP, with 11% of the vote, was also shut out. Like every other PC candidate, Hatfield lost his seat and then resigned the leadership. Liberals took over a legislature without an opposition, something that turned question period into a little bit of a farce until other party leaders were invited to question the government from the legislature bar. The divisions within the PC party would explode over the next few years and lead to the emergence of the Anti-Bilingualism Confederations of Regions Party, which would form the official opposition after the 1991 election. After being re-elected in 1991 and 1995, McKenna would step down as Premier after a decade in office. PCs would return to power in 1999 under Bernard Lord. 
And that'll be it for the podcast this week. If you aren't a subscriber to the writ.ca, you've missed my series of post-election analyses I've been putting on the site. This past week, I took a deep dive into the liberal and conservative results. Next, I'll be tackling the NDP. You can head to the site to subscribe if you want to check those out. All right, so I just want to wish everybody listening a good, long Thanksgiving weekend. Keep safe and have fun. Until next week, thanks for listening. <music>